You can go ahead and take your seats. And at this time, our children's church is dismissed. If you're new and don't know where your kids should go, right to my right, um, your left, follow the flow. So this morning, we're, we're jumping back into, thanks, John, thanks, worship team. Um, this morning, we're jumping back into a, a book that we uh, took a break from for about two and a half months. Uh, back in October, um, in light of Advent and holiday season and the first of the year, we kind of stopped going through the book of 1 Samuel, found in your Old Testaments. And I've been asked, are you going to resume? Are you going to resume? And I said, yes, um, we just needed a little break. And so we're coming back to um, this magnificent book in the Old Testament called 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. I decided I'm not going to put it on the screen behind me this morning for the simple fact that sometimes it's just nice to have our Bibles with us, even if it's on your iPad or your iPhone, just to have your own Bible and to look at um, the Word of God yourself. Now, for those who might be... Whistle there. Uh, For those who might not really know much about 1 Samuel or might just be joining us Just uh, indulge me for a moment, those of you who have been here, to get our biblical bearings a little bit so you understand where we're at. Um, These are two historical books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and they center on a really important development in the history of Israel and in the history of God's redeeming the world. And that is the emergence of this thing we call a king. Um, 1 Samuel uh, and 2 Samuel Um, focus our attention on the first two kings of Israel. And the whole of Old Testament history surrounds the history of Israel, its beginning, its roots, and then up into the time of Jesus in the New Testament. And it contributes to the kind of unfolding of God's great plan, this idea of a king. And it focuses our attention primarily on King David, the greatest of the Old Testament kings, the greatest of the kings of Israel who had a heart like the Lord's. He was a man after God's own heart. And he is, um, as we look at him, he is the shadow, just a mere shadow of the great king to come. Because David is the forefather of Jesus. A thousand years from David's life, um, uh, a king would be born named Jesus. So this is, um, this is Jesus' uh, forefather. In addition, David is, is given a, a, an unprecedented promise that someday one of his sons would sit on the throne of the world forever. And that, of course, ultimately leads us in the direction of Jesus. So that's how this book, um, that's where it points us to. Uh, but it also teaches us about faith. When I, I read the Old Testament, especially its historical portions, I'm, I'm primarily asking three questions, and I would commend these questions to you. The first question is always, as you're reading, what does it teach us about the Lord, about God, about the heart of God? What is God doing in history? Um, because he's the big hero. Second question is, how does that history lead us to Jesus? Because all, all roads, roads in the Old Testament lead to one central place, and that is Jesus. He's like the galactic center of the Bible and the center of the universe. And then the third question you ask is, okay, um, is there an example for me to follow in terms of what it means to trust and live in trust in the Lord? And this morning we come to one of those lessons in the life of David, um, and it's a, kind of a lesson in reverse. It's how not to live uh, by faith in the Lord. As we come to a a place in his life where he, I think, in my opinion and in my interpretation, he takes a wrong turn. Now again, let me just back up for a second so you kind of understand the overarching flow of this young boy named David's life. We have, if you've been with us, we have followed him from the peak of him standing on the battlefield over the body of this mammoth giant named Goliath because he defeated him with a mere stone. 
we have seen him, um, the hero, the one that God used when everybody else was afraid. And then after that, he descended kind of into this valley of the shadow of death where he was repeatedly um, persecuted and targeted for termination by his predecessor, the jealous king uh, Saul. So he's been on the run through most of uh, 1 Samuel up to this point, um, a victim of injustice, of persecution, and murder. And at the point that we find him here in chapter 27, um, he feels the full weight of pressure. He's at a crisis moment. Now, um, again, in my thinking, there are two times in a person's life that is a Christian's life, someone who believes in God uh, and believes in Christ, there are two times where we are more vulnerable than other times um, to make mistakes and, and make wrong turns. And there are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, times of comfort, And then on the other side, the times of crisis. In times of comfort, um, we are vulnerable to the sin of discontent and wanting and lusting for more. David's going to be in a time of comfort in 2 Samuel where he is going to be vulnerable and will commit sin out of that comfort, one out of desire and lust. Um, But on the other end of the spectrum is is times of crisis when all the pressure is being put on you and you you feel like um, the world is is heavy upon your shoulders. Um, Those are times in which it's easy to be overpowered by fear and then make the wrong decision because you're afraid that God's not going to come through. And that's, I think, what's happening here. Um, I want to put you to put yourself there for a moment. David is, has 600 men with him, and it says that their households, their wives, and their households meant their children too. He's responsible for 600 men and their families, including his own wives and, and possible children. And they're on the run. They've been on the run for a while. You know, you're having to scavenge food and and protect and preserve everybody. And you can imagine the kind of weight that 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 would press down upon a person. So David is feeling that weight. And under that weight, he cracks. Now, For those of you who care um, for the justification as to why I think David cracks here and why he makes a wrong turn, three basic reasons why I think he takes a wrong turn. One is that chapter 27, unlike all the previous chapters, makes no mention of God or the Lord. It's absent from the entire chapter. And you might say, well, big deal. Well, the previous chapters are full of um, the word Lord and God, and we find David crying out to the Lord and speaking of God and vice versa. And it's it's hauntingly absent in chapter 27, as if David has lost sight of the Lord. And I think that's precisely what is happening. He has forgotten that God is bigger than the problem, and all he sees is the problem, so the word God and Lord is missing. Second is that the last prophetic word he got, that is an authoritative word from a prophet telling him what to do, found in chapter 22, verse 5, was directing David to go back to the land of Judah. That is, he was supposed to go back to the place of Israel, back to his homeland, stop wandering around. And the assumption here, or the idea, is that God would preserve him there. He would protect him from Saul. He just needed to go back, back to his hometown, back to the homeland, back to Judah, and there trust the Lord. Well, that's the last prophetic word. And here in chapter 27, he leaves Judah, perhaps in violation of that prophetic command. And then last but not least, kind of given uh, support for this interpretation that David's taking a wrong turn, is the fact that the things that David does in chapter 27 are at best morally questionable and worst outright wickedness. 
So for those reasons, I, I think David makes a massive wrong turn here, and we're supposed to learn from this wrong turn um, how not to deal with crisis and pressure and so forth. And I'm going to kind of take you down a four-step path here to show you how kind of a wrong turn works. His wrong turn begins with what we might call, and John alluded to it in his prayer, um, faithless self-talk. Another way I've thought about it is, is faithless conclusions that we have generated in our own mind. Under the pressure, this is the first thing we read in chapter 27. We read, Then David said in his heart, speaking to himself, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, the enemy, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the, within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. That's the message that he's telling himself. I'm going to perish if I stay here. That is a conclusion. That is a faithless conclusion. Like, did David, I mean, I find myself thinking, did he forget about the previous chapters of the over nine times that God delivered him or preserved him or helped him to escape? Like, did he forget God was always there, that all of the times that Saul threw his spear, he, he escaped? That God had a perfect track record of preserving grace in his life? Did he forget those things? Did he forget that God promised that one day he would be king? That is, he, he is out of fear. He is lapsing in his faith that God is going to indeed preserve. And he has come to the faithless conclusion. You can almost hear like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh speaking in this text. You know, where it's just like, I shall perish one day, you know? There's no sense of hope or light in here. He has come to a faithless conclusion. And I think what we'll see in a couple of moments is that people, Christians, believers, followers of the Bible, the first mistake we often make is either out of fear or desire to come to a mental conclusion that lacks faith. And that is the beginning of a wrong turn. That it starts right here with your thought life and what you're telling yourself and the conclusions you come to. David isn't speaking words like, God, you are sovereign, you are in control, you are good, you are with me. You know, your rod and staff, they comfort me. I don't have to fear evil. He's not thinking about those things. That's not the message he's preaching to himself. He's preaching the message of, I'm going to die. That's what he's doing. And it's been interesting to me as I've thought about this whole thing of, of self-talk or what we say to ourselves. That it's, it's really important. It's hugely, massively important what we're saying to our hearts and brains. And whether or not it's a word of faithlessness or it's a word of faith. The Bible itself is filled with prayers and songs that are directed to the self. Here are just a couple samples from the Psalms. Just listen. And notice that the person is preaching to their own heart. You can almost picture it. Like picture a pulpit. You know, we don't have one here, but it's over there. Um, and, and the pulpit set up in your mind and, and part of you is going... Get a grip on life, damn trust in the Lord. And the other part's going, but I'm afraid. Like that's kind of what's going on. Psalm 42.5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Or Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He's preaching to himself the truth of hope in the Lord. Don't just uh, self-absorb in your turmoil. Or bless the Lord, O my soul. We sing this song. And forget not all his benefits. He's preaching to himself. Don't forget God's goodness. Don't forget how many times he's forgiven you. Don't forget that he's crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Don't forget. He's preaching to himself. Psalm 66, 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. These are just a sample of the ways in which we as beings, or should I say people of God in the Bible, manage to maintain a somewhat of a faithful, loving walk with the Lord amidst all the pressures. You know when life's coming apart and you're in the fray and, 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 and you feel the pain. How do you keep going without going to the right or to the left or freaking out and making decisions out of fear instead of faith? They preach themselves. The words, the goodness, the grace of God, the loving kindness of God, the the covenantal promises of God. That's what they would do. That's what we should do. But that's not what David does. It's like, I'm going to die. And this begins his wrong turn. And this typically begins wrong turns in our lives as well. Who hasn't been there when you've self-talked yourself into a faithless position? Ugh. God can't save this marriage. You might not have said it that way, but you've settled on that conclusion in your soul. That is a faithless conclusion. Or the Lord really, I don't think he'll ever get his hands around my son or my daughter. That is a faithless self-taught conclusion. Or I'm worthless and God can't ever use me. That is a faithless conclusion especially in light of the fact that by his spirit he's made us sons and daughters and made us ministers. It's a faithless conclusion. You have to watch what you say to yourself and what you believe. Watch the self-talk and the conclusions. Are they faithless conclusions or are they word-filled conclusions? Which is why, by the way, the Bible is so important for God's people. Not in some kind of a purely academic or informational way, but it's by these words that we live and breathe as we, as we preach good news to ourselves, not faithless news to ourselves. Well, that's step one. But then once one believes a faithless conclusion, then it leads to a foolish decision. Decisions flow from our convictions or our conclusions. We find David acting or making the decision to go to Philistia, to go to his enemies. We read in verse 2, So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. A lot of great names in here. And David lived with Achish at Gath. Now, Achish is the king of one of the Philistine cities. He and, his, he and his men, every man with his household, that is, children and so forth. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So in some sense, his plan worked. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of, our, one of the country towns, that is, country towns within the Philistine nation, that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish, the king of the Philistines, 
uh, gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Sixteen months David is on this journey. As I told you, the Lord told him back in chapter 22, verse 5, go to Judah. And here David leaves Judah, and he takes up refuge, not in the Lord, but in the walls of a Philistine city. In a manner of speaking, David, concluding that he was going to die, took things into his own hands, matters into his own hands, and started to do things his own way. And it puts him taking refuge amongst the Philistines. And that's, we do the same two steps. You conclude a faithless conclusion. The next step is you're going to take things into your own hands. And it rarely ever goes well when we take things into our, our own hands without trusting the Lord. The Bible's filled over and over again with, with, with examples of even good, godly people who trust in the Lord taking matters into their own hands, and it backfires almost every time. And that's what he's doing. Faithless conclusion leads to a foolish decision. Now, you think about normal life, everyday contemporary life, you realize that really is true. If you're a person who's living hand-to-mouth and you're living from paycheck to paycheck and you come to the conclusion, the faithless conclusion that God's not going to provide everything we need this month in terms of the basics, the temptation is, based upon that faithless conclusion, to go and bow down, not before the God of, 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 of the, the thousand hills upon which cattle roam, but to bow down to the holy credit card and say, take care of me, and then find yourself in a greater mess than you were before. Or who of us haven't known of a, of a young man or a young woman who wants to be married? And I recognize not every young man or young woman wants to be married, but most do. It's a natural thing. It's a God instinct thing he's placed within us. To go and find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, which we all know, is a myth, but looking for that special someone to share life with, raise kids with, to go to church with, to worship with, to grow old together with. Most people want that. Pray for that. Look for that. But then when it doesn't come and the years pass, they grow impatient and subtly but slowly adopt a faithless conclusion that God somehow has skipped me over. And time and time again, probably you, and I know I have seen that it leads to a relationship, that leads to a marriage, that leads that young man or young woman away from the Lord, not to the Lord. Faithless conclusion about reality leading to a foolish decision. That's not the end, though. That foolish decision then leads to deception. And this is the part in this chapter that I think is at Best morally questionable, if not outright wicked. Verse 8 says, Now David and his men went up and, and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. These are not Israelite people. These are old enemies of Israel. As far as sure to the land of Egypt. So he takes the 600 men out and he is um, raiding people and their stuff. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. This is beyond collateral damage. This is men, women, and potentially children. But would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. 
When Achish asked, where have you made raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah. He's saying, I attacked the people of Israel. That's where all this stuff is coming from. Or against the Negev of the Jeremelites. Um, or against the Negev of the Kenites. These are all Jewish clans. And David will leave neither man nor woman alive to bring good news to uh, bring the news news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, "So David is done." Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of Philistines. Sixteen months he did this, and Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench. And that's the actual literal Hebrew translation: stink. To his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. You kind of see what's going on? David's in this Philistine town. He's going making these raids with his 600 men. He's attacking the enemies of Israel. And he's, he's, he's eliminating all of the people so that word can't get back to the Philistine king. And the reason given for him to wipe, of wiping out the men and the women is so nobody can find out. So he can keep a secret. Because he needs this deception to convince the king of the Philistine people that he's trustworthy. So he tells them a lie. I attacked the people of Israel. And the ruse, the deception, the ploy worked. Uh, Achish, the king of the Philistines, trusted David to the point that he, he, he solicits or invites him to become his servant and his lifelong bodyguard. That's a lot of trust. But all that trust is based on deception that has in it this kind of raiding and killing, which doesn't seem to be warranted in the text. This is massive deception. You can kind of see him just digging his hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Isn't that how sin works? You kind of see the Lord standing over David going, really? <laughs> I've provided you so much, and you're just, time after time, you're just digging it deeper and deeper and deeper. He's like, you're not turning your eyes upward. You're just continuing to figure out how you can fix it. That's not just a David thing. That's a fallen human thing and an instinct to try and, um, once you come to a faithless con uh, conclusion and you make a bad and wrong decision to somehow cover it up or somehow to create a deception so that um, the pretense is maintained. That's a human thing. We do that. Well, that was the third step. Faithless conclusion, foolish decision, to deception, and then the final one, he lands himself as... I think most of us can testify. When you walk down this path, it, it, you find yourself in a greater dilemma than you were to begin with. The dilemma is kind of sketched out at the beginning of chapter 28. The actual end of the story begins in the next chapter. Just the first two verses where it says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. So now war is brewing between Philistines and Israel, and David's on the wrong side. And Achish said to David... Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So, you know, you've got to kind of feel this out a little bit. Like, he is in a classic catch-22 between a rock and a hard place. By the way, that's what that kind of rock and hard place. He's right there. He's the guy between those two walls. On the one side, he's living in Philistine cities and his family, his wives and, and the, 
the, the families of the other 600 men are all living within the Philistine community. And in order for them to be safe, he has to maintain the deception. And if he says, hey, you know, I can't go to war against Israel, the jig's going to be up, the deception's going to be broken, and the truth's going to come out. And he can't risk that. It's not only dangerous, it's deadly to his family and to his, to his men. So that's one side. You have to maintain this deception. On the other side, can he really go with the Philistine armies against the Lord's anointed King Saul, against his best, most faithful friend, Jonathan, against the armies of Israel? Absolutely not. So you see this kind of this faithless conclusion to this foolish decision, to this deception has landed him in this massive dilemma. Now what is he going to do? You have to maintain the deception, but can't fight against the people of Israel. And those two are incompatible. Dilemma. Who hasn't been there? You know, made a wrong choice, sinned, uh, told a lie, um, did something else only to find yourself like, what am I going to do now? If the lie is exposed at work, I might get fired. But if I don't expose the lie, you know, then my conscience is going to eat me up. Like, you find yourself in what seems like an unwinnable situation, like there's no way out. And that, by the way, the belief that there is no way out is itself self a faithless conclusion. And it all started. And here is one side of the application. Let me just apply this now. We've told the story. It all started with faithless self-talk. David said in his heart, I'm going to die. Rather than preaching to himself the truth about who he knew God to be, a God of steadfast love, a God of power, a God of strength, a God who would preserve and protect, a God who is historically always there with him, the God who makes promises. He chose the alternate route, and and that's really always where it begins. When you and I start to adopt faithless conclusions, when we generate our own opinion about something that has no element of faith that God is in it with us, that starts the descent. So part of the application is for you and I to make sure we're saying the right stuff to our own souls. Filling our minds and hearts not with lies, but with truth. Departures from God always begin with a lie, just like they did with Adam and Eve. Only this one is self-generated. We do it a lot. We make ourselves really angry with somebody else because we keep telling ourselves how bad they are. And we find ourselves stewing, waking up in the middle of the night, really mad, can't sleep. Why? Because you've been talking so faithlessly in your head about somebody else. We do it all the time. The way to go forward and to prevent that kind of wrong turn is to make sure that you're preaching the truth of God to yourself, not faithless conclusion. This is a, maybe an example will help. This is, happens to be from my life just in the contemporary right here, right now. Two weeks ago, kind of bombshell went off in my extended family and found out that Two people, um, a couple, married couple with two beautiful kids, um, decided to call it quits. Gone camping with them, on vacation with them. I've known them for a long time, after almost a decade of marriage. And as I kind of investigated, like, why? Like, I didn't know really anything was wrong. It came out that the, the wife, 
who happens to be the only Christian in the relationship, is the one who's calling it quits. And it's not for reasons of infidelity or abandonment, which in the Bible are legitimate reasons that one can break the marriage covenant. Rather, the reason that she has concluded that her marriage should end is because he is not spending enough time or involved or engaged enough with her and the family, forgetting things like anniversaries and birthdays. So she has concluded in her own mind that it would be better that we split and be apart than stay together because it's hard, it's tough, and she doesn't feel value. Now, the, okay, okay, follow me here. The split begins with the conclusion that it's okay, that it would be better to be apart than be together, not beginning with the truth that Jesus said, listen, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And he said that not because he wanted us to stay in difficult places, but because he knows what's best for us. And that to somehow break it apart in a way that's premature or, uh, or illegitimate is not just going to um, harm some abstract principle, but it's going to harm your soul. And to allow his truth to be the one that is the the one that you listen to, and that he will provide grace for you to make it through the tough times. He will provide strength for you, even if it's just, you know, barely making it. Like, I can, I can sympathize with my friend who, who's, who's enduring a difficult marriage, but you can't let that pressure just force you to make false, faithless conclusions that's going to lead to a foolish decision, which is, you know, just going to end you in a place where you're going to find yourself in a worse dilemma. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, moment by moment, asking yourself the question, am I going to trust in the Lord in this moment or am I going to take things into my own hands based upon my false conclusions? I'd be willing to bet there's one, two, four, five, I don't know how many people here this morning, right here, right now, who are on the verge of a big decision in light of some pressures and crises in your life. And I just want to say, that this is a sovereign word for you personally from the Lord. In this moment, this day, this time of your life, which voice are you going to trust? What conclusion are you going to believe? A faithless one or one that says, God, you can do anything. And you will supply what's needed, even though it's tough. And I'm going to trust you. I'm hoping you respond in the positive to that if you're on the verge of some big decision. Stop yourself. This chapter would say, pause. Am I acting and believing what God has said? Or am I acting based upon my own self-generated, faithless conclusion? Well, that's one side of the application. The other side is equally important. Because I could hear somebody saying, imagine somebody saying, <laughs> Dan, this message is a day late and a dollar short. Because I've already gone down that road. I've already adopted conclusions that I knew didn't have faith in it, didn't trust the Lord. I made the decision, and the decision is irreversible. And I'm now facing the same d- dilemma that David did. And I, I don't see any way out. I'd be willing to say that there are people here like that. that you're all, you've already went down this path. And you're kind of sitting in a pool of failure 
feeling like there's nothing that can be done and, and, and you're thinking there's no word for me, Dan, in this message. But I would want to say, yes, there is. And remarkably, it's the same message. Not only will trust in the Lord keep us from making wrong turns, but when we do make wrong turns, which we will, we also are supposed to trust him in those times too. It's fascinating to me, and it is tremendously encouraging and uplifting to know that the Lord does not abandon David, even though he spent 16 months making this wrong turn. Because in chapter 29 and 30, God is going to do some providential, gracious, good things to provide a way out for David. We're told that God always provides a way of escape for his people, and I have to believe that. Sometimes that way is very difficult, but he provides a way out. There's never a dilemma that there is not an answer to or a way out. As I said, that is a faithless conclusion. And it's going to be a painful one, as we'll see in chapter 30, his way out. But God, like, parts the waters just when David thought there was no way out, and David is rescued. That teaches us also a valuable truth about the heart of God. That when it comes to his people, people who really trust in him, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, God never abandons his people. We may wander from him, but he never wanders from us. We may be people who who find ourselves mired in sin, but God is the one who is merciful to forgive because he's the one who ultimately pays the price. That brings us, of course, to Jesus. That what made David a man after God's own heart wasn't that he walked perfectly or he trusted perfectly. But he was a person that knew that, that when he was unfaithful, that God was still faithful. And when he pulled boneheaded moves, he knew that God was still good to him. That when he was making a mess of things, God still was going to uphold and sustain God's purpose in his life. He would be king, and that didn't rest on his shoulders, that was on God's shoulders. And that even when he did sin, like we're going to see with Bathsheba, ultimately he trusted that God's mercy and grace would even go that far to forgive an adulterer, a murderer, a conspirator. By the way, the same sin that he does here is basically the same tactic he uses there. So it's a way of dealing with failure and fear. So the answer for you if you're in that place is God hasn't left you if you really do trust that. Um, God never abandons his own ever. And will shepherd you through your wrong turn. And that is the good news. It's an act of faithlessness to believe that, well, I made the wrong turn, therefore God has abandoned me. That means his graciousness and commitment to you is based on your performance, and that is garbage. His commitment to you is based on his sovereign grace and grace alone and the blood of Christ that he would one day shed on your behalf. He is committed to his people to the very end. The valley of the shadow of death and down into the wrong turns of life. So I would encourage you, if you're one of those people, to trust him that his love is that big and his grace is that full that he never left your side, just that he never left David's side, and in fact, in grace, would bring him back. So we have a wrong turn. I hope if you're on the verge of a wrong turn, you'll stop with what you think and are preaching to yourself. If you're in the middle of a wrong turn, I hope you'll hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you 
that he is gracious, he is there, and he always provides a way out. And I want to stop with just one story. It, it, it probably had to be over 10 years. In fact, it was probably 12 or 13 years ago. I was fairly new here and a young pastor, and I had this woman call me. She was a young lady. I think she was 18. And she asked to speak with me, and she says, I'm a Christian, and I go to church up in Vacaville, but I'm too ashamed to talk to my pastor, so would you talk to me? Now, um, I'm not sure exactly how she got my name. Maybe it was on a long list of churches she tried, but she called, and, and she got a hold of me, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll talk with you. And so she came in, and she was completely broken, and she said to me, she goes, you know, I, I'm, I'm not married, and, um, and I'm pregnant, and everything in me wants to have an abortion. And... Um, That's an emotional topic for me. My wife is adopted. Uh, and so anyway, she says, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pregnant, and I'm, I'm ashamed, and I want to terminate this baby. And I, I realize in this moment this woman is, is in this massive dilemma, this girl, and she's afraid. And I understand it. You can understand it. Put yourself there on the one side. On the right side is this, public shame and humiliation, not just for her soul, but for her family, good Christian family. That's one side. That's huge. On the other side is the realization that if she terminates the unborn life, that it's wrong. The one is public. The one is private. And you know, in that moment, the easier thing, in the moment, the easier thing is to do the private thing to alleviate and get rid of the potential humiliation and shame. But the long-term effects, and I've seen it personally, is that she would be a ruined person, especially when she has child number two and she realizes what she did with child number one. In a dilemma, she already made the choice, the faithless choice, um, not listening to what God says about our sexuality and going ahead and making the decision, and, and now she's in this, this David dilemma. She had a tough choice. People like you and I get in places like that, maybe in different ways and different sins, too. What I want to say to you is that there's a 13-year-old boy that's alive today because this woman trusted the Lord in the middle of the dilemma, and now she has the blessing of a boy that she loves. And hard, hard, but that's trusting in the Lord after you've made a wrong turn. And that's the blessing that God blesses with you with graciously when you simply are willing to, okay, I screwed up, Lord. I trust your forgiveness, and I want to listen now and make the right choice. So I hope this morning, if you hear nothing else, it's those two aspects. Watch what you say to your head. Fill it with good truth, not faithless truth. And second of all, if you've been a person who's been in that place, know that God's love reaches down that low and he always provides a way out. But don't keep digging the hole deeper. It's time to finish that up and move on because God always provides a way of escape. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your kindness and goodness to us. I thank you for your self-revelation that you actually gave us a word, a word to tell us about your heart and how you've acted in history, ways that we can think and believe in ways that will help us avoid Wrong turns and also truth and gracious um, revelation as to how we can respond when we have made a wrong turn. 
You just call us to come back and trust. And I pray that if there are those here this morning who, who are in that place, are still digging the hole, I pray that they would turn and trust you knowing that you are good. Anyone who would come and take the sin of your people upon your own shoulder is a God who is full of love and grace. So I pray you reach out in this moment, Lord, and just liberate their souls and, and call them to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.